You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. All right, so we are in the second week of a series called Missional Living. Uh, it is uh, a eight-week series that will take us all the way into December. This week, we're in week two. We're going to be talking about mission and place. And we're going to be in an odd place. We're going to find ourselves in the book of Leviticus today. And so if you have your Bibles today, you're welcome to turn to the page uh, of, of the book of Leviticus in chapter 25. We'll have it on the screen. You also, you can also look at it on your phones if you want to. One verse today, just one verse is all we're going to be in today. It has a, has enough good wisdom for us. Leviticus 25, verse 23. Says that the land shall not be sold in perpetuity. That's a, I love that word, by the way. For the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. You know, in this series uh, of missional living, we are trying to center ourselves around the call that God has for every able bodied believer to share in his work. The sole purpose of mankind was to and is to glorify God by reflecting him as an image into the world. And we do that best when we enjoy him most. Everyone who loves Christ is called to reflect his beauty and to revere his name throughout the world. It doesn't rest with the local church, meaning the building and its staff. It is the job of every faithful believer to make the name of God great in the world. Mission, as we said, isn't something we go and do. Mission is our very purpose in creation. And so this week we seek to understand how we live out that purpose in this our allotted time and place. And so let's take a moment and pray, and we'll jump in. God, we just come before you today, and we ask that you would just bring your truth into our hearts today, that we would come under your word, Lord, that we would revere it as uh, fresh water for our souls, that you would bring through your spirit conviction and guidance and gladness around your word, that you would drive us to a place where we would not be just hearers of the word, Lord, but we would be doers. And we ask all of this in the precious name of Christ our Lord. Amen. There is a bridge in Durham, North Carolina that's called the Can Opener. It is a bridge that sits 11 feet, 8 inches up off the ground. Now, that may seem plenty high for a bridge if you consider that the average SUV and full-size truck sits off the ground at about 6 feet. Cars are smaller than that, obviously. So it seems that there's enough clearance there for cars and trucks to go through except semi-trucks that sit 13 to 14 feet off the ground. And you probably can imagine why this bridge has gotten the nickname the can opener. It shears off the top of semi-trailers, much like opening a can of tuna. And so some aspiring entrepreneur 
decided that they were going to put up a webcam at that intersection and record all of the chaos that was happening. And somewhere between 170 and 180 accidents have occurred by that bridge since the year 2008. And here's the thing, I've almost watched every single one of them. I don't know what it is that brings me such joy in watching trucks get their tops ripped off of, but it's, there's enough giddiness in me that you should be concerned about it, and me, right? Here's the thing. Do you know what would stop making that event funny? It would not be funny if I owned one of those semis if I was one of those drivers that got struck by the can opener, humor stops the moment that it cost me something. Isn't it interesting, if we think about it, the way that we can detach ourselves from things if they are not ours? We can laugh at the expense of others if they put their phone through the washer and dryer. That's funny to us. We can laugh at the showboat trying to show off with their motorcycle and drives it into the pool. That's funny to us. We can even detach ourselves from tragic deaths of others if they are not our own or people that we know. But the moment something becomes ours instantaneously it takes on a different value. Psychologists call this the endowment effect. That when we own something, whether it be a dog, a cat, a house, a car, or an idea, we begin to value it more than anyone else does. You might have recently gone to garage sales where you left bewildered how anybody could sell anything when they kept their prices that high. You may be familiar with a phrase from your mother growing up when there was an unfortunate accident and she said, we just can't have anything nice around here. It is the reason why I love Notre Dame football and think it's the best, not because they're really that great right now, but just because they're my team. And listen, wives, it's the reason why your husbands have so much conviction around really terrible ideas we become to be attached to the things that we own, which means that if we're not careful, we can grow territorial, defensive, and even selfish. And when you combine that with living in a world that derives most of its worth and status through the things that we own, many have and many will be consumed with a drive to build and protect their own personal kingdoms here while ignoring God's directive that creation would build and promote his kingdom and his name on earth. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. The author of Hebrews says, we should be grateful that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship, praise, and awe. It is true that we were created to reflect the image of God's good name and beauty into the world through our enjoyment of him. And if that is true, which it is, it will most assuredly require us to stop promoting and seeking our own glory and our own goodness first. And so Leviticus, this odd place that we head today, lays out neatly three flourishing truths for us today 
that was just as helpful back then to help us understand our place in this world. The first is a reminder that ownership is an illusion, for the land is mine, declares the Lord. The second that we find is that we are not people on this earth that yet have a permanent address. This is not our home. We are going to another land. And number three is that God's faithful don't find meaning in finite places, but only in an infinite God. God is with me. And so three points today. And now here's the thing. This may be my very first three-point sermon in my existence. Uh, There is a saying within the church world that all good sermons have three points in a poem. Uh, So if you're in here today and this is new to you, just know that you may have just walked in on my only good sermon to this point. So I'm excited to see how it lays out. Moses writes in the book of Leviticus, for the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. One of the things that we must be reminded of is that all of creation down to the atomic level, the level of neutrons and electrons were conceived in the mind of God. Not a square inch or a speck of dust was not designed, oversought, oversaw, and developed through and by the hands of the Almighty. The very purpose of our creation, we've learned, is to glorify God, to reveal his beauty, to make his name known. It is the evidence in which we know God. The earth exists for us to understand the immensity of God's complexity and intelligence and just how wonderful he is. And we were developed and birthed with that same thought in mind. The moment we reason to ourselves that the, the purpose of the world is for us, that we exist for our own pursuits, we cease to live in the flourishing boundaries constructed for our own joy in God's wonderful creation. And the most often pursuit and purpose that we take on in this world is to accumulate enough stuff for our enjoyment and our security. But yet, is it not true that ownership is simply an illusion? I mean, you think that you own your house, but if you don't pay your mortgage, the bank will take it. You think that you own your land, but if you don't pay your taxes, the government will seize it. You think that you own the stuff in your house, which is crazy to believe that the estimate of the amount of things in our home today eclipses 300,000. There are 300,000 different items in the average home today. We think that we own those things. But do we remember that at the end of our lives, all of that stuff will be in estate sales or in dumpsters? Is it not true that far too often the things that we own begin to own us. One of the things that the Israelites did when they first settled into the promised land, after years of wandering in the desert, was that every seventh year they had a sabbatical year. And in that year, they would not plant crops in their fields. They would devote themselves to rest. God had provided a bountiful harvest in the year prior to help them survive until the next crop came. It was a lesson in rest, but it was also an exercise 
and trust. And so every seventh year was a Sabbath year, and every 50th year was a year of jubilee. And during that year of jubilee, all slaves and bondservants would be set free. Every debt would be forgiven. And all the land that was sold in those 50 years would be returned back to its original owner. It means that if a family was struggling and needed financial help, they could actually sell their land, which turned into a lease. And when the year of jubilee came, they would get that land back. This was the means to prevent any family living in the promised land without a a land to call their own, but also the ability to make ends meet in the present without deriving the future generations of the means of production. And so how would you feel today if you bought a home only knowing that you're going to have to give it back in the near future? That to us would not seem to be much of a wise investment. Yet, for the ancient Hebrews... It wasn't a big deal because they didn't see themselves as the primary owners. They were secondary. God owned it all. And the year of Jubilee was meant to remind them of God's rescue and his redemption and his forgiveness. That all that they had possessed in that moment was only possible by God's grace and through his allowance because everything is his. Everything is his. And that seems to be good wisdom for us in this land of consumption. Where far too often the things that we own end up owning us. Where we end up working harder and longer to keep the things that we have and get the things that we want. Only to have to equally work as hard to then keep them. It's all God's. It's all His. How might we be jubilant with what we have? to convey to others in this world our rescue, our redemption, and our forgiveness. And this, our time and place. And then Moses says, for you are strangers and sojourners. God did make a place for us in this world. It was called Eden. It's our true home. God's intention was to dwell with his creation in physical presence, partnering with them in subduing and creating and multiplying on the earth. But humanity saw themselves as more beautiful than God. They believed, we believed that God was holding out on us. We weren't settled in just being with God. We desired to be God. We sinned. And the result of that sin was separation and death. Creation and mankind were cursed and we were kicked out of the very place that we were designed to live in. And to this moment, we are living in chaos, homeless and unwhole. Genesis 3 conveys it this way, starting in verse 22. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now... Least he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It was in this instant that we became a people without a place. Because the only place that we were 
made for was to live with God in perfection. God's people became refugees, sojourning across a broken world in search of a new place. But we know that God did not reject his creation, but he sought its redemption. He picked a people through a man named Abraham. He called them his people. He was their God and they were his people. He rescues them from Egypt where they are held in slavery and he begins to take them to another place. They were going to a place that God had promised them, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land for his own people to rest. But the promised land proved to some to just be that, a promise. Because of Israel's unfaithfulness and groaning, they wandered in that desert for 40 years, and many of them never saw the promised land. But finally they arrived, and in their arrival, God divides the land up into 12 different tribes, 12 different tribes of Israel, they finally possessed the land. And the intention of that land was to be a light to the nations, the hope of the nations, that all around the Hebrews would people would see how much they loved God and how beautiful and glorious they, that he was. And they would become desirous of his presence and join them. Yet the problem of sin remained. The problem of sin remained, and Israel was not faithful to God. And so began the tremulent history of God's people living in the promised land. Wave after wave of unfaithfulness, wave after wave of capture and occupation, of exile and death. It was not a city of peace like the name Jerusalem means. But yet God was faithful to his purpose and his will. That through that nation, in spite of their sin, and mainly because of it, he sends the Son. He sends Christ to remake the world, redeem the world, to bring it back to the place that they were designed to live in. But to do that, God must first make his place in the heart of every human. And in Christ, God takes humanity out of the equation. And through a gift of grace, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, offering himself up as a ransom for our sin, through faith, he gives his believers the spirit of God that lives and dwells in his people, transforming us into the very image of Christ. Instead of a God people going to a place to reside with him, God beautifully steps into creation for the purpose of making us the place that he lives, to dwell in the hearts of every believer through faith. And look, this is no insignificant thing. It is the very reason that we cannot be filled with worry and fear when we're reminded that it is all God's, that he owns everything. It is the very reason that we can plod along as sojourners, perplexed, living in a world that seems meaningless at times. This, these two words, with me, make all of the difference. He is with me. He is in me. I am his place and he is mine. What an unbelievable, glorious thing it is to know that God is with me, that we are his temple, 
his dwelling place, that God's intentions to save the world would be to make us a place that he could live so that he could glorify himself through us. 2 Corinthians writes it this way, chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. Paul says, For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are his jars of clay Jars of clay that harbor a treasure which is the light and the glory of God. And so, believer, I want you to understand that you do not have a place in this world. This world is not about what we own. It's about who owns us. That we were purchased through the blood of Christ. God's faithful don't seek their meaning and significant in finite places, but only in an infinite God. Our place is wherever God is. Our place is wherever he is. God is faithful to us. And because we live with him in his place, we in this world become the place that God's heavenly kingdom intersects with this world. We become the place where light meets darkness. Paul writes, but you are citizens of heaven, awaiting the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, I want to tell you that this is not your place. And maybe you need to be reminded of that today because you're feeling weighted and perplexed. This world has nothing for you. You don't belong here. You're not from here. Scripture tells us that right now in this moment that Christ is preparing a place for you with his father. And so the question is, what do we do now? What do we do here? Well, the aim of ours is to partner with God in the work of redemption and restoration, to bring humanity and creation back into a whole relationship with God, to make this earthly kingdom look more like our true home. God's kingdom being built in this place as we reveal his character and love and righteousness and peace and justice and delight in his hope. You know, just a few miles away from us sits the metropolis of Bern, Indiana, right? The land that is living in the shadow of the clock tower, as I like to call it. It is interesting when I journey over there just how different that town is than ours, You see, Bern was settled by a bunch of Swiss immigrants. And what did those foreigners do when they made their pilgrimage to this land? They tried to make this, their new home, look much like their old home. That's why you see glockenspiels and houses that look like gingerbread houses. They began to make it look more like their true home. And isn't it just as simple as that for us believers? that we exist as the dwelling place of God to make this our home look more and more like what we'll be someday in his kingdom. And the only reason that we can do that in a land that is not our own, as people without a home, strangers, is because God is with me. Somebody in here today maybe just needs to be reminded 
that in our faithfulness, God is with us. Yet what does it look like to live in a land that has different values, different wisdom, that wants different things than we want? How do we live and exist in that world? What I want you to consider is that our word speaks a whole lot about this. I want us to think past, back in the past, in a moment where God's people lived in exile. They were strangers in their own land, mixed in with other people, no land to call their own, waiting for God's kingdom to be restored. It was during the time of Jeremiah the prophet. And Jeremiah spoke to those in exile, and he said this in Jeremiah 29. He said, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you in exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. As citizens of heaven, foreigners in a strange land, we are to seek, cultivate, create as much as we can, as often as we can, welfare for the places in which we dwell in. To seek the welfare of the city means to increase its happiness, its health, and its prosperity. Scripture tells us that God determines the allotted times and boundaries for every living thing. And so as much as you may not want to exist in this current state of affairs, it is the sovereign decree of the Most High God that you are here. And you are here because it is your mission field. What will you do in a land that is not your own? with the things that you don't really own in light of a God that has come to dwell within. What is your compelling vision? Listen, friend, Christianity sometimes gets a, a bad rap in this day and age. But there is no greater source of good in the world than the Christian faith. There is no people that have increased the welfare of the world than Christians. It is Christianity that developed the modern healthcare system, who established hospitals, who brought the Red Cross into battlefields. It was Christians who established the most elite and prestigious universities that this world has ever known. It was Christians who founded orphanages across the world and drive in this very moment to bring clean water to all the nations. It is Christianity that has promoted civil rights across the globe, singing, seeking to dignify the lives of every man, woman, and child as fellow image bearers. It is Christians today that lead the charge in foster care and in the adoption world. God has always worked for the good of all people through those who love him. And so look, I'm not up here telling you today that you need to do some sort of elaborate, giant thing that God's good and goodness and character might be known. I'm not calling you into global missions or to make and found some global operation. I'm here wondering, what is your vision for your neighborhood? What is your vision for your home where you live? 
What does it mean to be faithful to God in this, our time and place, in the places that we reside? And maybe that simply starts with you forgiving somebody that lives next to you. Or maybe that starts with you opening your home to somebody who's in need. Maybe that starts with you baking a pie for somebody in need or giving a ride. How might the love that we have for God in us overflow into this, our current time and place? That others would be so desirous to join you and me as sojourners, foreigners in a strange land. And so today, let us edify and worship the God that is with us. To find joy where he is and live in this day for the very purpose of our creation, to be on mission. Believing that we belong to another world, another home, and that what we have on this world is not really ours. That we would just walk as faithful sojourners to a better home. That we might see the comforts and the pleasure of this world as far less important than maybe we esteem them to be. Would you pray with me? Father, you help us to find rest. Find rest in the truth that you are preparing for us our true home. That you are currently making room for us to live with you. And that, Lord, we would, we would just go ahead and live there now and live by the values and the morals and the character of that kingdom, that we might in this time be the place where the world might meet you. As the Lord give us a compelling vision for our neighborhood, for those who live amongst us. Shake our staleness and complacency. Let us think sustainability, Lord. That we wouldn't seek to do great things simply for your name. Lord, that we would rather just seek to be faithful to who you are. We love you, Jesus. And we thank you for your truth. We pray it in your beautiful name. Amen.